Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. The podcast that I recorded on Tuesday was aptly titled The Biggest Bubble Ever, and I spent a lot of time discussing some of the absurdity in the market, and particularly in the NASDAQ. And the following day on Wednesday, the NASDAQ, in fact, hit a new record high. It closed for the first time above 12,000. The S&P also hit a new record high on Wednesday. The Dow Jones did not hit a record high, but it did close above 29,000 for the first time since the big collapse in March. In fact, that actually sparked Donald Trump to tweet out how lucky we all are to have him as president because we have the Dow back at 29,000. And it's not really that we're lucky to have Trump as president. We're unlucky to have Powell as Fed chairman because it's the Fed that is the reason that the Dow and the NASDAQ and the S&P were so high on Wednesday. It's not because of Trump or his policies, unless you want to claim that Trump's policies are why the economy is so weak. And it's because the economy is so weak that monetary policy is having such a strong impact on the markets because the Fed is printing all this money and keeping interest rates artificially low to compensate for the underlying weakness in the economy. Of course, the weakness in the economy didn't begin with Donald Trump. Trump inherited uh, the structural problems from Obama. The problem is he did nothing to correct them because correcting them would have been too painful. And Trump did not want to be blamed. You know, there's an old saying about you know, not wanting to shoot the messenger. And so Trump didn't want to be the messenger of bad news once he was the president. He wanted everybody to be happy. He wanted to brag about how great everything was. And so he turned uh, to the same monetary uh, magicians uh, that he had criticized so correctly when he was a candidate. But anyway, we had uh, another big move on Wednesday. And what do you know? Yesterday on Thursday, the biggest bubble ever 
may have popped without a pin. In fact, I thought it was interesting because a lot of the talking heads on CNBC were really scratching their heads and trying to figure out why the market was so weak on Thursday. And in fact, the Nasdaq fell by the most it's ever fallen percentage-wise from an all-time high. So in other words, we closed at a record high on Wednesday, and then we declined by the most ever on a trading day following a day where the NASDAQ hit a record high. In fact, if you look at how big the drop was from yesterday's high to today's low, the NASDAQ got as high as 12,074 on Wednesday, closing at 12,056. And today's low was all the way down at 10,875, spot 87. Now we closed at 11,313, down about another 1.2%. So we're more than 6% now below the record high that we just set on Wednesday. And in fact, technically, the NASDAQ had an outside week, but it didn't have a total outside reversal week, meaning that the NASDAQ traded above last week's high and it traded below last week's low. So it was an outside week and it closed negative, which is technically bearish. But the rally that we had at the end of the day prevented us from closing below last week's low, which would have been an even more bearish reversal. But, you know, we still could end up with a reversal for the month. So the month of September can end up being an outside month from August because we've already taken out the August high uh, so far in September. And, you know, when the Nasdaq was on its low today before the late day rally, we were almost within 100 points of actually taking out the low uh, from August after already taking out the high. And I think there's a pretty good chance that we will take out that low next week, given the bit of a sell-off that we had into the close and the technical damage already done this week. So we certainly may be setting up for an outside reversal month during the month of September, which, again, uh, historically the worst month for the stock market. And if we end up having an outside reversal week in September, then it's possible that we could be setting ourselves up for another October crash. We'll see. But obviously, if we did get a crash in October, that would kind of rain on the Trump uh, stock market parade because one of the things that Donald Trump is touting as a reason to reelect him is to keep the stock market up. He even said in that quote that I mentioned about why we're so lucky that he's president is he said that if Biden were president or Joe were president, the stock market would crash. So obviously it's going to be a problem if it crashes anyway while he's still president, because then he no longer has that potential threat uh, to scare away uh, potential Biden voters who might also be in the stock market. But it's hard to say. Again, this is the biggest bubble ever. And so it's not going to die easy. And so it's certainly possible uh, that, uh, you know, the bulls can get this under control with the help of the Fed. In fact, it was interesting because yesterday, as the stock market was tanking, 
you had uh, Evans uh, from the Federal Reserve came out and specifically said, and I was watching CNBC as Steve Leisman was reading the quote hot off the presses, that another round of QE was coming, more QE. I mean, I don't think it's a coincidence that the Fed is coming out with more QE when the market is getting killed. And so the Fed is trying to rescue the market by dangling the prospect of of more QE. I mean, first of all, when did QE stop? I mean, how do we need more? We've already got so much of it. And I thought that was what was interesting is that the market didn't even rally on that. And, you know, we closed near the lows of the day despite the promise of the Fed or the reminder from the Fed that, hey, we got your back. What are you worried about? Uh, you know, we're going to do more QE. And it wasn't just the, the NASDAQ that was selling off. I mean, the blue chips went down too, just not nearly as hard. But the Dow Jones, right, was down on the week too. It wasn't a big drop, but we closed about a thousand points off the intra-week high. So a pretty significant decline from the highs, even in the blue chips. But certainly, if you look beneath the surface of the stock market, you can see the rotation out of these high-flying momentum COVID stay-at-home stocks to more basic uh, raw material, industrial stocks, some of the energy stocks. I mean, they were down, but not nearly as much. And, And some of these stocks were actually up, even some of the financials. Uh, caught a bid, but I would still be staying clear of those. Uh, But there are some sectors of the market that obviously people could be buying if they really understand what's going to happen. But it was the the NASDAQ high flyers and, you know, Tesla, you know, not necessarily a COVID stock. It's just a a, a cult stock. You know, Tesla had a huge decline uh, coming off its uh, its highs for the week. In fact, the real high for Tesla was pre-market. I mentioned that on the last podcast, but that's when uh, they announced a $5 billion at the market stock sale and, uh, you know, Tesla rained on its own parade and then it started to pour and we ended up closing positive on the day, but Tesla closed the week at 418, having traded well north of 500 uh, intra-week. Although despite its gain during the regular hour session, I just noticed that Tesla is trading down in after hours trading. It's off about 3% now total on the day. So it's given up all of its uh, daily gains. And now it's actually down when you count the after hours. It's trading around $395 a share, although well off the 372-ish intraday low. But the news that is causing uh, Tesla to sell off is the fact that after the close, S&P came out and announced that it would not be adding Tesla to the S&P 500 index, which obviously is disappointing a lot of Tesla shareholders who may have tried to front run that announcement. Because if Standard & Poor's had added Tesla to the index, then all of the index funds would be forced to buy Tesla in order to have their funds uh, track the index. So a lot of times investors, if they think a stock is going to be added to the index, buy it first because they know there's going to be a lot of buying by those indexers who then need to buy the stock uh, to mimic the index. So now that it's not going to happen, you know, you had people who are planning on, you know, selling the fact who bought the rumor. Well, now it turns out uh, that the rumor was wrong because there is no fact 
And now when these Tesla buyers who are looking to sell all the S&P index funds, well, they don't have anybody to sell to because those funds no longer have to buy Tesla. So the question is, who will? You had another one of these uh, stay-at-home stocks, DocuSign, which came out yesterday with better-than-expected earnings, yet was down 11% today. So again, this is one of the stocks that everybody has been hiding out in as people are, are working from home, they're not signing physical documents, so they're going to use DocuSign. So kind of any stock that was tied into that theme has been run up. And I mentioned this when I spoke about the big 40% rise in uh, Zoom video because of their better than expected earnings. But the point I made on Tuesday was that, look, this is not going to be sustained and to the extent that there is a significant increase in Zoom's uh, market, it doesn't justify the share price. And we had a big drop in that stock from the highs. And again today, although it recovered quite a bit, by the end of the day, it was only down about 3.3%. But Zoom was as high as $478 during the week, and it closed the week at 369.89. So a substantial uh, sell-off from the high. Again, whether or not this is the peak of the bubble, there's no way to tell for sure, but it certainly is possible because as I said, this is the biggest bubble. It is completely irrational and it's going to end badly and it may have already ended, but the bad part is yet to come. In fact, this is a long uh, three-day holiday weekend. I'm not even sure if the bulls are know enough to be concerned over the next three days, but the U.S. markets are going to be closed on Monday. Uh, while foreign markets are open. And so this is three days, you know, where something could happen, something big can happen overseas. And I would be very nervous if I was long these stocks. Of course, I'm not. Uh, I'm long stocks that I'm very comfortable with that I think are the real beneficiaries of the Fed's uh, reckless monetary policy. And in fact, speaking of that, gold did not rise as U.S. stocks fell. Gold was down as well but not nearly as much. I think gold was off maybe 1% or so uh, yesterday, and it gained uh, part of that back today. Gold had a positive day. Gold ended up closing up a couple of bucks, uh, 1934-ish an ounce. So again, still holding comfortably above the old record highs as it continues to build this base above 1900. Gold stocks went down. In fact, most of them were down again today, even though gold itself was up, although there were a few stocks that managed to buck the trend in the mining sector and close positive. But I think what is significant about the mining stocks is they didn't get killed. Remember, when the U.S. stock market was getting killed back in March uh, because of COVID, the gold stocks were going down more uh, than the rest of the market. That's not the case now. They're holding their own. They're hanging in there. Now, I believe that if people understood where this was headed, they would be buying these stocks. But, you know, one step at a time, at least they're not dumping the stocks like they were before. So the relative strength on these stocks is improving. You know, the market that I think really showed the greatest signs of weakness and really not that many people talking about it is the bond market. Right? The Treasury market got killed, particularly today. I mean, it was it was uh, not strong yesterday when the U.S. market was tanking. You didn't get this big rush to the perception of safety in the Treasury market. 
But look at the yield on the 10-year today, all the way back up to 0.721, which is still very low, uh, but it's a lot higher than it was yesterday, percentage terms. And the yield on the 30-year up to 1.47. But look at the chart. I mean, we could be in for an explosive move up in yields if we get a little bit higher. And that's going to be scaring the hell out of the Federal Reserve because they cannot let interest rates rise because then all hell is going to break loose. So to the extent that we get a bigger spike in long-term interest rates, then that extra QE that the Fed was hinting at is going to arrive probably in a much bigger dose and much quicker than anybody believes. And I think the main reason for the QE is not the stock market. What really concerns the Fed is the bond market. I mean, they're concerned about both. But the one that they really don't want to lose control over is the bond market. So to the extent that they need to rescue anything, it's the bond market. Because if they don't rescue the bond market, the stock market is dead. And one of the factors that is complicating uh, the Fed's mission to try to save the bond market was a story that really didn't get uh, much, much coverage. And that is news coming out of China. And I've read it from several different sources. So it seems to be legitimate that the Chinese have decided officially that they are going to be paring back their holdings of U.S. Treasuries, right? They now own north of a trillion or so of U.S. Treasuries. And there hasn't been any significant increase recently. I think it's been trending down. But now they're saying that they want to reduce their holdings to $800 billion, which is very significant. That's a you know 20% reduction or so in their holding of U.S. Treasuries. And to the extent that this is true, this is a big problem. Now, people are d- diminishing this or dismissing the significance of it. I'm reading articles to the extent that anybody is even writing about it, that it doesn't matter. What's the big deal? We'll just buy the bonds ourselves. I mean, we're doing all this QE anyway, so who needs the Chinese, right? The Fed could just print up whatever amount of money we need to buy whatever bonds the Chinese want to sell. And of course, it's not just the bonds that the Chinese are selling. And remember, they don't actually have to sell bonds. I mean, they can, but to the extent that they have shorter maturities, they simply allow the bonds to mature and they just get their money back, their dollars, which of course they also don't want. So now they're going to sell those, right? Because I think it's not the U.S. treasuries that the Chinese don't want. It's the U.S. dollars that the U.S. treasury is obligated to pay them. That's what they don't want. And they hold their dollars in the form of U.S. Treasuries. So when they don't roll over their treasuries or sell them, they're also going to be selling the dollars and they're going to be buying something else. Now, what is that something else? Well, gold. Uh, Maybe they'll go into other currencies. Maybe they'll go into other uh, assets. Uh, But I don't think there'll be other U.S. dollar-denominated debt instruments. But not only is the Fed going to have to print extra money to buy up whatever the Chinese are, are selling or not rolling over. But the Chinese were there for many, many years as a major buyer of U.S. Treasuries. So it's not just that the Fed has to make up for China's selling, but they also have to make up for their lack of buying. 
And so that is a lot of extra money printing. And this is a big deal. I mean, it's not like it doesn't make a difference. People who think, well, well, the Fed will just print money don't understand the difference between getting the Chinese to loan us the money and just having the Fed print the money instead. Because when the Chinese loan us the money, there isn't the immediate impact on the dollar or consumer prices because we export our inflation to the Chinese and you know they're they're actually buying up our bonds but when the Fed has to print the money then we're going to have to bear the 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 pain of that inflation ourselves because now that extra money is going to be here bidding up prices and there's going to be no support for the dollar see the Chinese have been facilitating America's ability to live beyond its means because the process of funding our deficits means the Chinese send us their production, their consumer goods, and then they buy up our bonds. So they loan us the money to buy their stuff. Well, when they're not doing either, they're not loaning us the money, we're printing the money, and we're not getting any of their stuff. So we have more money and less stuff, and this is going to be bad news uh, for the American economy. But remember, if the Chinese are out there telling the rest of the world and they're the biggest owners of U.S. treasuries, we're selling. What do you think other central banks are going to do? If they know the Chinese are selling, they're going to want to sell first. I mean, because they're the, the elephant in the, in the room. You want to get out before the elephant, right? You know, So other central banks are going to want to front run uh, the Chinese and get out first. So this is going to spark other selling. And it's not just central banks. If you're an investor in treasuries and you know the Chinese don't want to buy anymore, you know the biggest buyer is not only no longer buying, but is committed to selling. Why would you want to buy? Especially when you know that the Fed is going to have to print so much money to buy and destroy the value of the dollar that treasuries are obligating to pay. I mean, you're going to get dollars in the future that are going to have much less value purchasing power than the dollars you loan to the U.S. Treasury today. So this is going to accelerate the move out of U.S. Treasuries. And of course, if the Chinese are smart enough to reduce their Treasury holdings to $800 billion, what makes anyone think they're going to stop at $800 billion? Why not $700 billion? Why not $600 billion? I mean, why do they own any Treasuries at all? I mean, I think it's a complete... Uh, waste of their resources. They should get rid of all their treasuries and they probably will. And so will everybody else. You know, I keep getting into these uh, uh, discussions or, you know, debates with people and they want to point to these low yields as some type of proof that there really isn't low inflation because saying, look, Peter, people are willing to loan the U.S. government money for 30 years at less than one and a half percent. They obviously don't think there's inflation. And my rebuttal is, I don't know anybody who is actually doing this. I don't know any of my clients or anybody else's clients. In fact, anytime somebody makes that argument and I say, well, are you buying U.S. treasuries? Like, no, no, hell no. Why would I do that? I'm not going to loan money to the government for 30 years at one and a half percent. Exactly. Nobody would do it. Now, there are some speculators who have been doing it, right, where people have bought U.S. treasuries not because they intend to hold them for 30 years and collect that coupon, but just because they're going up, right? And they're buying treasuries because they think, hey, the Fed has got my back. The Fed is in the market. So I'm going to buy these treasuries. I don't care what they're yielding because I'm not buying it for the yield. I'm buying it for the capital gain, right? So the government, the Federal Reserve, turned bonds from a conservative investment to a speculative investment, where the only people in the bond market are speculators. 
because no conservative investor who wants yield is anywhere near the bond market. So the only ones in the bond market are central banks and speculators. And I think both of them are exiting. And so there's going to be nobody left. The only one, the only buyer left in the U.S. Treasury market is going to be the Federal Reserve. And that means the, the, the pace of QE is going to accelerate dramatically as the Fed goes from buyer of last resort to buyer of only resort. And then as people start to perceive that, that's when uh, we really start to see the bottom drop out of this market. So watch the, the bond market. I think there's going to be a lot of information that we're going to get from that market as to how close we are uh, to, uh, to the real crash. Also looking at the dollar, you know, the dollar actually uh, caught a bid yesterday from the collapse. So we did see a little bit of a movement into the U.S. dollar. The dollar gave back some of its gains. So it did manage to close the week positive, but still with a 92 handle. And we got down into the 91s. The low for the week was 91 spot 746. And that was a new low since, I think, April of 2018. Uh, We did manage a slight bounce off that low, but nothing significant. So I think the downtrend in the dollar is intact. And I think the weakness that we're seeing in the Treasury market is really a function of a loss of confidence in the dollar and weakness in the dollar. Because again, the treasury market is a bet on dollars and the future purchasing power of the dollar. And so if you're selling treasuries, you're in effect bearish on the dollar. And that's what I think is going on. And I think people are going to get a lot more bearish on the dollar and they're going to get a lot more bearish on the treasury market. And they're going to be selling both. But one asset that nobody was buying this week was Bitcoin. You know, Bitcoin once again, collapsed as everything else went down, right? It's you know not a non-correlated asset. Everybody tries to say, hey, the benefit of Bitcoin is that it's non-correlated. Well, so far, there's no proof of that. Every time we get a major sell-off uh, in stocks, we typically get a big sell-off in Bitcoin. And in fact, that's exactly what happened. You know, Bitcoin intra-week also, just like the NASDAQ, got above 12,000. Uh, but it couldn't hold that. And intraweek, in fact, today, Bitcoin traded below 10,000 again. We didn't stay there very long. The low that I saw was 99.02. I think we made a couple of trips below 10,000 and uh, the buyers quickly came in. But that was a full bear market. So you had an intraweek greater than 20% decline in Bitcoin. Now, if anybody thinks that that's anything like digital gold, right? How is that possible? Gold was down slightly. In fact, I read an article uh, on Thursday about how both gold and Bitcoin failed to protect investors from Thursday's uh, route in the stock market. And the headline was, was, was misleading because those two assets did not behave the same. The point that the author was trying to make was like, hey, Bitcoin is digital gold. And so you see gold and digital gold, they did the same thing. They behaved the same way. Neither one of them uh, offered protection. Well, there was a big difference. The price of gold went down, but it went down much less than the price of stocks. So if somebody sold stocks and bought gold as a safe haven, 
they could have sold their gold and bought their stocks back and been ahead of the game. Because in terms of gold, stock prices went down. Yes, gold went down in terms of fiat currency, in terms of dollars, but it went up in terms of gold. So if you're looking at was gold a hedge against the stock market, it was. Because people lost a lot less in gold than they did in stocks, and therefore they preserved buying power because they could buy back more stocks than they sold if they moved the proceeds into gold. It was the opposite with Bitcoin. Bitcoin was also down, but it was down more than stocks. So if somebody was in the stock market and they were worried and they bought Bitcoin as a hedge, they lost more on their hedge. Bitcoin went down more than the stocks that they were trying to hedge. See, gold went down less. So gold worked, right? Gold took volatility away. People that had an allocation to gold did better than people that had no allocation to gold. But anybody who took a portion of their stock portfolio and put it in Bitcoin because they thought Bitcoin was a hedge, they did worse. Their accounts went down. Their portfolios went down more because Bitcoin was weaker than even the NASDAQ. And yes, Bitcoin had a little bit of a recovery today. I mean, as I am uh, recording this, we're back around 10,600. In fact, 10,500 was really significant support that we cracked through. Now we're back above it, uh, and so we didn't hold below, you know, in, you know, indefinitely. But we spent a lot of time trading below ten thousand five hundred today. In fact, we spent a little bit of time trading below ten thousand, not much. But I think the fact that we even got below ten thousand five hundred and stayed there for as long as we did uh, should be very, very worrisome uh, to the Bitcoin crowd. I mean, I personally think that the support now is not ten thousand five hundred. I don't think that's as significant. I think that now the support is around 10,000. I think that's where you've got the buying. And so we'll see how much longer Bitcoin can stay above 10,000. But I think if it breaks 10,000 decisively, we're headed for 9,000. And if we take out 9,000, Bitcoin may never trade at 10,000 again. Uh, So, you know, I've been repeatedly warning people about the dangers of Bitcoin And what happened this week should be another lesson of how Bitcoin trades, and it is nothing like gold. And if it can go down 20% in a couple of days, it can go down 40% or 60%. And just because it's come back in the past doesn't mean it's going to come back in the future. There is a big bubble in Bitcoin, just like there is a bubble in the NASDAQ. And anybody who is still at these parties has overstayed their welcome Uh, The time to leave has long since passed, and there are other opportunities. There are great investment opportunities out there uh, that people could take advantage of, but too many people are distracted by the bubbles uh, to really appreciate the real opportunities that they can't see uh, because they're too focused on what's happening in, in the bubble markets. Let me turn my attention to the economic data that came out, but before I get to the jobs numbers that came out today, which everybody is talking about. I want to talk about the trade deficit numbers that came out yesterday that basically nobody is talking about other than me, right? We got the July trade deficit and it was supposed to come out at 58.5 billion, which would have been worse than the 50.7 billion from the month of June. And first of all, that deficit was actually revised 
higher to $53.5 billion. So the June deficit was worse than what was originally reported. But the July deficit was even worse than that and even a bigger miss over what the consensus was. The deficit came out at $63.6 billion, and that is the total uh, deficit uh, in goods and services. This is the biggest deficit, monthly trade deficit, that the U.S. has had since July of 2008. And that trade deficit was the worst trade deficit in U.S. history. And this is, I think, the second worst trade deficit in in U.S. history. Now, that trade deficit that we had in July of 2008, that huge deficit happened just a little bit before the crash in 2008. Remember, the even though the recession began in late uh, 2007, nobody realized we were in a recession uh, in the summer of 08. I mean, nobody realized it really until uh, probably the, the early 2009 that we, we had begun a recession. But the stock market didn't crash until summer. And so when the stock market tanked and you know we had the financial crisis, that's really what stopped the trade deficits. That's what brought down the trade deficits was the Great Recession. So while we had this big bubble that the Fed had inflated, Americans were spending all this money on imports and running up the deficit to a record level. Well, finally, now the Fed has printed enough money so that now the deficits that we had just before the 08 financial crisis were back at that level again. And maybe that's another harbinger of another crash to come to bring this deficit back down, because if we don't get a crash based on how much money the Fed is printing, the deficits are going to go even higher. And based on the fact that the dollar is falling, remember, as the dollar is falling, that exacerbates these deficits because it means we have to pay more for our imports and we get less for our exports, which drives the number bigger. We're going to need a severe recession, even more severe than the one we're in now, because technically, I mean, we're still in recession and we've got this high trade deficit, you know, as high as the one that we had when we were still in the bubble. Now, interestingly enough, too, you had spokesmen for the Trump organization on CNBC discussing the trade deficit and pointing to the growing trade deficit as being a sign of an improving economy. Hey, this shows the economy is getting better because, look, we have this big surge in imports. And so this shows that the economy is strengthening. But of course, when Donald Trump was a candidate for president, he said that big trade deficits were a sign of how weak the economy was, that we had uh, decayed, that we were an industrial wasteland. Remember, Donald Trump's formula for making America great again was restoring our manufacturing and putting an end to our trade deficits. He kept saying we were losing on trade. We were losing on trade. Vote for me so we'll win on trade. Well, I voted for Trump. Trump won. And now we're losing bigger than ever. This trade deficit that we just got last month was worse than any monthly trade deficit that we had when Obama was president. So how are we winning? We're losing big time. We're big league or bigly, whatever the uh, Trump expression is. Now, I know there are a lot of people that are saying, hey, Peter, you're not being fair because, you know, there's COVID-19. Yeah, I know there's COVID-19. It is a global 
pandemic. It's not just in the United States. That's why it's a pandemic. So every country is dealing with the effects of COVID-19. So why should that cause the U.S. trade deficit to go up, right? When we've all got the same problem. See, what's driving this trade deficit is not COVID-19. It's the weakness of the U.S. economy. It's the structural problems in American industry that have persisted throughout the Trump presidency. Trump did nothing to address the underlying issues that were causing the large trade deficits that he promised to eliminate. And in fact, our response to COVID-19, all of this new money printing is what is driving up these trade deficits because people aren't going to work and so they're not producing, and but they're getting money. They're getting sent money from the government, and then they're taking that money, and they're buying stuff that was imported, that other people work to produce. And so our trade deficit is going up as a result of the money supply going up. But this is all inflation, and this is going to change. This dynamic is going to change when the dollar tanks and the cost of all the stuff that we're importing goes to the roof, and it be become so expensive that no Americans can afford it or few Americans can afford it. But that brings me to the job numbers, the August job numbers that came out this morning. And the consensus was for about 1.4 million jobs created. And again, I don't like to talk about job creation because these jobs, for the most part, are not being created, right? So when anybody talks about all this job creation, these aren't jobs being created. These are jobs being restored. These are jobs that existed prior to COVID-19. And now the workers who were furloughed are being recalled, right? So you're not really creating something that was already there, right? Uh, so people are returning to work. But when you know Trump likes to talk about, oh, we created all these jobs. Yes, you know, only if you want to talk about all the jobs we destroyed. You know, Trump doesn't want to you know, claim responsibility for all the jobs that got destroyed. He'll blame that on COVID-19, but he wants to claim credit for all these jobs that are supposedly created as the destroyed jobs uh, return. But the actual number came out pretty close to that, 1,371,000. Uh, but what excited Wall Street was the huge drop in the unemployment rate, which was 10.2% last month. And of course, again, this is this doesn't count all the discouraged workers or the people working part-time that want to work full-time. So it's a BS number anyway. Uh, it's understating uh, the, the true number of unemployed. But it was 10.2%. And the consensus was that it was going to drop to 9.8%. And it actually dropped all the way down to 8.4%. So that really surprised a lot of people. And I wouldn't uh, read too much into that. I think there were enough... Uh, internal inconsistencies within the numbers uh, to really call that number into question. And my feeling is there is an upward revision coming next month to that 8.4%. I doubt that the unemployment rate is actually that low, even though that's not a low number. I don't think the the number is is that low. But you know, if you look at the actual jobs that were being created, I think the biggest problem, number one, is that 344,000 of them were government jobs. That's 25% uh, of the jobs that were created were government jobs. 
I mean, that's not good news. Because remember, these jobs are not productive jobs. I mean, most of them are census workers, right? That's, I think, two-thirds of those uh, were temporary workers. So they're not even going to be there, although that's probably a good thing after a few months. But all they're doing is counting up how many people we've got, right? I mean, it's not they're not adding any production to the economy as they're counting up how many people are in the economy. I mean, they're just ca- counting numbers. So they're not providing any services that we could use. They're not producing any goods, but they will be collecting paychecks. And so in reality, these jobs don't improve the economy. They have to be supported by the economy. They are a drain on the economy. They are consuming resources that otherwise would have been freed up for productive uses. And now we have to divert them uh, to pay all these uh, government workers to, to count everybody. And, and so this is not good for the economy. You know, we want people working productively, producing goods and services, uh, not unproductively, uh, you know, pushing paper or, you know, for, for the government. I mean, this, this is the big disconnect. People don't seem to realize the connection between putting stuff in and taking stuff out. Like a lot of people just look at, well, they spend their money, right? If government workers, they have jobs, well, that's spending, right? They're going to be helping the economy. Look, spending doesn't help the economy. It's the work that you do that allows you to spend that helps the economy. You see, when you do productive work, if you put in, right, you you help produce goods or you help uh, supply services, right? You earn money for doing those things. And so now that you earn money by putting stuff into the pot, now you have money that allows you to take stuff out of the pot. So what you take out is in proportion to what you put in, right? So the more you put in, the more you can take out. And that's what's fair. But when you have people spending money that haven't put anything in, if they haven't actually contributed any services or products that other people want to buy with their money, if you're just spending money, then you're just taking out, you're putting nothing in. And so what you're doing is you just, you're meaning that there's less for everybody else. Everybody else has to consume less because now you're drawing from the pot, but you put nothing into the pot, right? So this is what happens when you get these these government jobs. Now, is it possible that some government jobs, yes, there are some government jobs that in theory can help the economy runs smoother, more efficient, and can lead to more productivity from other people. And so to that extent, maybe some government workers are helping out. Uh, But to a large degree, uh, government workers are not productive. And what they're taking out of the pot is way out of proportion to anything that they put in. And of course, as I mentioned earlier, the people who are just sitting at home collecting extended unemployment benefits, they're putting nothing in either. But now they're taking out. In fact, because the benefits that they're getting being unemployed exceed what they earned when they were working, they're actually able to take out more from the pot when they're putting nothing in than they, when they were actually contributing. And this, of course, also helps fuel the trade deficits. These government workers that aren't producing any goods and services for themselves to buy or other people, right? They're, they are going to take their paychecks and they're going to want to buy stuff. And so where's that extra stuff coming from? It's coming uh, from foreigners and it's going to add to our trade deficit. So that's number one. But number two, the next biggest category for job restoration, right, rather than creation, was retail trade and then leisure and hospitality, right? These are all the COVID jobs that got lost as brick and mortar stores, 
hotels, restaurants, bars, you know, they laid people off. And now some of those people who were temporarily laid off are returning to work. And so they're a big part of the job creation. But you have to ask yourself, how long are these people who are returning to work going to stay on the job? How long before their employers realize that they don't need them anymore, right? That the economy, even post-COVID, is nowhere near uh, where it was pre-COVID. Remember, I said from the beginning, everybody who was assuming that we would recover to the conditions that existed before the disease was wrong. There's no way we're going to go back to that bubble. I said from the beginning that at best, we're going to recover to the recession that we would have had anyway, that is going to be even worse now because we had COVID than it would have been had we not. And again, not so much that we had COVID, but that we had the government's response to COVID, including uh, all the extra uh, spending and money printing. So the recession that we're going to have once we get over COVID, if we even get over COVID, is going to be much worse than the one we would have had had we never had COVID. So a lot of these jobs are going to get lost after they come back. So after we get this recovery of jobs, we're going to have the relapse. And a lot of these people who were initially laid off on a temporary basis, and now they've been recalled, are going to be laid off again, only the next time the layoffs are going to be permanent. And in fact, I noticed that already beneath the surface, the number of permanent layoffs that we have now in August is at the highest it's been since 2013. We have 3.4 million permanent layoffs. So a lot of people are not noticing what's happening beneath the headlines because the headlines are so distorted uh, by all these uh, temporary uh, laid off people returning to their jobs. You can't really see what's happening beneath the surface of that headline, the number of people who are actually losing their jobs permanently already. And if you look at that chart, uh, that's pretty scary. I mean, I think we're going to keep on going up and up. And I think ultimately the number of permanent job losses is going to take out the peak that we hit uh, following the 2008 financial crisis. We really peaked out, the permanent job losses really peaked out in about 2010. And I think we're going to be back up to that level probably before the end of 2021, maybe 2022 at the latest. Uh, but I think we will be back up at that high or, in fact, even higher. Also, if you look at the number of manufacturing jobs created, they were looking for 36,000 and we got just 29,000. Again, they did upwardly revise the prior month from the original 26,000 to 41,000. But my point is that this is a tiny number, right? So the number of people who are returning to work in the manufacturing sector is minimal. And again, this bodes ill for our future trade deficits because if fewer people are working in manufacturing, that likely means that fewer things are getting manufactured. And that's why they don't need the people. I mean, you could say, well, maybe it's it's automation. Maybe they've found more efficient ways of manufacturing. They don't need all these people. That may be true to an extent. But I think a large part of why they don't need so many manufacturing workers to come back to work is because they don't need them because they're not making the stuff anymore. We're importing it instead. And so more of the stuff that we used to make ourselves is now going to be imported. Again, this is the opposite 
of what Donald Trump promised as a candidate and what he is pretending that he has delivered as president. He's actually making believe that he kept that promise when he not only failed to keep the promise, but as I said earlier, we are losing bigger on trade now than we were losing before Trump was elected. Now, of course, as we lose on trade, we win in our current standard of living, right? Our loss on trade is our gain in our ability to live beyond our means. So in the short run, we actually think we're winning even though we're losing because in the long run, all of this is undermining our economy and we have a huge day of reckoning uh, to come, a massive collapse because of all these years of living beyond our means relying on that trade deficit because what was enabling that trade deficit was the overvalued dollar and the dollar's acceptance as the world's reserve currency. Well, the dollar's days as the world's reserve currency are numbered. And if you didn't know that, China is clearly putting you on notice that that is the case. Why do you think the Chinese want to reduce their holdings of U.S. treasuries? Because they know that the dollar is not going to be the reserve currency much longer. So why hold on to all these low-yielding treasuries? Why not get out of them now? I mean, you've got a perfect warning sign of what's to come when the largest lender to the U.S. government says that not only aren't they going to lend any more money, but they want to get back what they've already loaned, right? They're shrinking that loan book down. And again, it's not just the Chinese, it's people all around the world uh, that are going to be uh, cashing in uh, these chips and moving on from the dollar and, and going back to gold and going back to a sound monetary system, which ultimately is going to be a huge uh, gain for the world. In the long run, hopefully it will be a gain for the U.S., but in the short run, it's going to be a massive loss because it's the United States that has uh, gained the most in terms of uh, an artificial benefit from this standard because we have been the issuer of the reserve currency and therefore the benefits uh, have been enjoyed by Americans. We've been able to live beyond our means. We've been able to consume without producing. We've been able to borrow uh, without saving. We're able to have all this stimulus. We're able to print all this money. We're able to pretend that we can just shut the economy down whenever we want uh, because we're, we don't want to get sick. And all we have to do is print money and everything's going to be fine because everybody around the world is just going to accept that money in unlimited quantities. And we can borrow an unlimited amount of money. And nobody's ever going to question whether or not we can pay it back because we never have to pay it back because we can borrow forever. Right? That is a bubble mentality, right? It's the same type of mania that corrupts uh, investors in these NASDAQ stocks or in cryptocurrencies, uh, you know, thinking uh, trees will grow to the sky or things that can't go on forever will go on forever. I can assure you uh, that this relationship that the United States has with the rest of the world can't go on forever and it won't go on forever. In fact, it won't go on much longer. And so people need to, uh, you know, I heed this warning and, and do whatever they can. Yes, have I warned people prematurely in the past? Yes, I have been sounding the alarm for quite some time. And so far, we haven't had a crisis. But that crisis is coming. And it's unfortunately going to be much worse than I originally thought. Because, you know, all the years of kicking the can down the road, these problems have got so much bigger than they were when I first started warning about them. And so the, 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 the urgency and the need for people to adopt 
my investment strategies are actually greater than ever. And I ultimately think that the profits on my strategies will be greater than ever because of the delay. Because the delay allowed the problems to get so much worse. The bubble is so much bigger. That means a lot more air is going to come out of it. That means the dollar is going to have a much more spectacular collapse. And that means that the odds of even a hyperinflation are much higher now than they would have been had we addressed these imbalances uh, when they were smaller and allowed the bubble to pop when it was smaller and maybe done so in a better political environment than the one we have now. So people who have so far you know, not followed my advice, I mean, you're lucky. You're lucky because we haven't had the collapse, but don't press your luck. So enjoy your uh, uh, Labor Day weekend. But on Tuesday, uh, when you go back to work, if you haven't already set up an account with Euro Pacific, do that. If you have an account, but you don't have enough money there, send more. Refer your friends, uh, anybody that you know, you're close to. Because if, you know, if all your friends are broke and you're the only one that has money, that's not going to be a good situation. Every, you're going to have to pick up every dinner check. Everybody's going to expect you to, to, to treat. And you're, if you're going to want to do something and you know, your, your, your neighbors or your relatives aren't going to have any money. So I would try to get people in your inner circle, your family members, uh, to also protect themselves so they don't go broke either. Uh, they can preserve their wealth. You don't have any gold, buy some, you know, you know, uh, contact Shift Gold or talk to your Euro Pacific Capital broker uh, about it. You know, look into the Perth Mint. And again, if you're listening to my podcast from outside the United States, chances are we can work with you at Euro Pacific Asset Management. Go to our website there, europacificfunds.com. By the way, again, we're now licensed. We've now been opening a lot of accounts for Canadians. Uh, so we're able to do that uh, for the first time in, you know, forever. Uh, we can uh, take accounts for Canadians. So if you're in Canada, you know, you don't have an excuse anymore. Uh, we're ready to go. We can accommodate uh, your, your new account. Anyway, that's it. Have a great uh, holiday weekend, everybody. And we will be back with more podcasts next week. I'm sure we're going to see a lot of fireworks in uh, the markets next week. I think we've really set ourselves up for something big. And so I will make sure to keep everybody informed and make sure people understand what's really happening and not just give you all that BS spin that the mainstream media uh, constantly spews out uh, when they cover all things uh, financial and economic. Thank you.